Reading will come from the book of Philippians this morning. It will come from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. After school one day, a first grade boy came home and he told his mom, he said, Mom, the teacher asked me today if I have any brothers or sisters who will be coming to school next year. And his mom said, well, that's so nice that she takes such an interest in her students. And then she said, well, what did you tell your teacher when, uh, or what did she say when you told her that you're an only child? He said, well, her response was, that's a relief. You know, there, there are some situations that are quite difficult in life, and What's interesting is that we share something in common, and, and the thing we share in common is that we are all going to experience difficulties. But then there is something that varies between each of us, and that is our threshold for enduring such difficulties. You see, we all respond to difficulties in our own way, and the, we can vary drastically in how we respond to those difficult circumstances. Some of us can face a particular situation and, and rise above it. And then there are those of us who can face the exact same situation and we live below it. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are, there are some who can respond to it with such a positive attitude, with such a joyous attitude, with, with such, a, with such a, 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 a contented attitude. And those same circumstances can be experienced by another who live with worry and negativity and who approach it complaining all the time. Why is that? How is it that some can live above their circumstances and others live below them? Well, today as we continue this study of the book of Philippians, where we're trying to find joy in the journey, we're going to look at joy in difficulties. And when we turn here in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to focus on verses 12 through 20 today. And what we're going to see in this text is how Paul tells us one can have joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. 
But before we examine what he had to say about living with joy in the midst of difficulties, let's first consider his circumstances. You see, when we turn to the book of Philippians, we're coming to a, a writing that Paul produced when he was in prison. When Paul wrote Philippians, he was in prison. Four times in the first chapter, he's going to make reference to his imprisonment. You can see it in verse 7, verse 13, verse 14, and verse 17. Now, this isn't the first time that Paul has been in prison, nor will it be the last time. In fact, you can read a list of all the suffering Paul endured as a Christian, as a servant of Christ. You can read a list of all those things in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 27. And what's interesting about that particular list is that Paul identifies how many times he was flogged, which was five, how many times he was beaten with rods, which was three, how many times he was stoned, which was once, how many times he was shipwrecked, three, but he cannot recall how many times he was imprisoned. In fact, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, he simply said of his imprisonments in comparison to other Christians, he simply said he had experienced far more imprisonments. He could give a number to the floggings, to the stoning, to the beatings with rods and the shipwrecks, but he couldn't give a precise number to the number of imprisonments, and I think it was because they were in excess. And I think the fact that Paul is currently in prison is something with which the church in Philippi could uniquely sympathize and may be the reason they so readily sent Epaphroditus to him. Do you remember what happened to Paul when he was in Philippi the first time? It's recorded in Acts chapter 16, verses uh, 16 through 24 in particular of Acts 16. One of Paul's first encounters in Philippi was with a demon-possessed slave girl whose masters used her for fortune-telling to make a profit. She was following Paul and Silas and their companions, and she would follow them for many days, and she would shout this. She would shout, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Paul got a little agitated with that demon-possessed girl following him everywhere, so he finally cast out the demon. And in casting out the demon, he took away her fortune-telling abilities that the, her masters made a profit off of. So that agitated those masters, and you know what they did? They stirred up a crowd. They incited a riot against Paul that eventually landed him in jail. He and Silas were arrested, spent the evening in that Philippian jailhouse with their feet in stocks. We read about how they were singing praises and, and, and praying at midnight. And then an earthquake came. And that earthquake shook the foundations of the prison, causing those, those uh, shackles to the floor to become unfastened and the doors to swing open. Paul and Silas didn't attempt to escape. No, they, they, they waited. And what ended up happening is that that, that uh, guard in charge of the jail was converted with his whole household that night. See, in Philippi, Paul's imprisonment 
became an opportunity to share the gospel. And I'm sure when the church in Philippi learned that Paul was imprisoned in Rome, they sprung into action with a gift, with a messenger, because they knew firsthand just how effective Paul could be as an evangelist in prison. And so I think the fact that Paul is writing from prison provides a unique source of of camaraderie between him and the church in Philippi. A church whose second convert was a guard at a prison. So Paul's in prison. That's his circumstance. But, But he's in prison in a particular location. He is in Rome as a prisoner. Now, we can determine this based on a couple of the statements that appear in the book of Philippians. Now, nowhere in the book of Philippians is the city of Rome mentioned by name. But if you look in the first chapter and you look at the 13th verse, there's reference made to the imperial guard or the praetorian guard or the palace guard, depending on the translation that you're reading. This is a reference to a select group of elite soldiers who served as the emperor's private bodyguard, as one commentator said. And these particular soldiers were stationed in Rome. Now, not not only does that serve as evidence of the location, but if you go to chapter 4 and you look at verse 22 of Philippians, you'll see that Paul sends greetings from the saints who are of Caesar's household. That statement implies that there were individuals either from Caesar's family or those serving his house in some capacity that became Christians. And the most logical city for these individuals to be found is, of course, Rome, because that's where Caesar took up residence. So it appears, based on the context of Philippians, that that Paul is a prisoner in Rome. And this fits well with what we read at the end of Acts, because you can read, beginning in Acts chapter 21 through the end of that book, how Paul was uh, arrested, illegally arrested, in Jerusalem. He was then transferred to, uh, to Caesarea, where he spent a good bit of time in jail, two years, being utilized as a political pawn, being misrepresented at times in cases against him. Finally, he makes an appeal to Caesar, so they put him on a boat. He gets shipwrecked on the way to Rome. When he finally arrives in Rome, he's put under house arrest for two years. And the book of Acts comes to an end. We never hear the end of the story, but we know at the end of Acts he's in Rome, and he's in, under house arrest for two years. That appears to be the context of Epaphroditus' arrival in Rome, where he finds Paul, he delivers the gift from the church in Philippi, and he's there to report on Paul's condition. What's interesting about the fact that Paul is imprisoned in Rome is that it had been his earnest desire to preach the gospel there one day. It's easy to forget that Paul did not establish the church in Rome. The church in Rome was established long before Paul got there. In fact, Paul wrote the letter to the Romans about five or so years before he ever stepped foot in Rome. 
And if you read that letter, if you read Romans chapter 1, you'll come across this passage in verses 9 through 10 where Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul wanted to go to Rome. And if you look at verse uh, 15 of Romans chapter 1, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And in verse 22, he explains that he has not been able to come there. He's been hindered from coming there for various reasons. And in verse 24, he says that he hoped to see them after he made a trip to Jerusalem. Well, it just so happens that that trip to Jerusalem resulted in his arrest. And a few years later, he's going to be in Rome. But I'm sure his arrival in Rome didn't go the way Paul had planned. I bet Paul envisioned walking into Rome and preaching in its crowded marketplaces, preaching in front of the various temples around town, maybe even preaching inside that grand Colosseum one day. But God had different plans. And instead of having a luxurious trip to Rome, he was put on board a boat as a prisoner and shipped there free of charge. But Paul didn't complain about how he got to Rome. Instead, he rejoiced at the fact that he was there. See, I think, I think Paul had learned that God's way is always the best way. That God's plan, that God's strategy, that God's tactic is always better than man's. Do you remember how Paul ended up in Philippi in the first place? He's on his second missionary journey. He starts off by going to revisit a couple of churches in Galatia that he, he established on his first missionary journey. And after he went to those two churches, he decided, hey, you know what? It's time for me to go into Asia and preach the gospel. The gospel hasn't gone to Asia yet, so why don't I go to the province of Asia, which would be eastern Turkey. I'm sorry, western Turkey. Uh, but we're told in Acts chapter 16 and verse 6 that the Spirit forbid him from going into the province of Asia. So Paul says, all right, well, I'll just go to a different province. I'll go to Bithynia. I'll go to the province of Bithynia. Haven't gone there yet. That's a new territory. I'll just go to Bithynia. Acts chapter 16 and verse 7 tells us that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow him to go into Bithynia. So Paul attempted to go to two different Roman provinces for the good purpose of sharing the gospel with people in those regions. And God intentionally closed those doors because he had a better plan for Paul. And so you can read in Acts chapter 16, verses 9 through 10, how Paul had this vision, a vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he and his uh, companions sought to go on to, into Macedonia, concluding that God had called them to preach the gospel there. And the first town he preaches the gospel in is a little town called Philippi. The point is that Paul ended up sharing the gospel in Philippi because God directed his path there. 
And Paul ended up in Rome as a prisoner because God directed his path there. So when Paul writes from his jail cell, he doesn't write as a victim. He writes as a victor because Paul has come to understand that where he needs to be is where God leads him to be. So Paul is in the town he had longed to be in, but he's there as a political prisoner. He's in awaiting an appearance before Caesar that will result in either his acquittal or possibly even his execution. And yet, despite those difficult circumstances, he rejoices. Look at what he says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8 again. After acknowledging his imprisonment and identifying how it had helped the spread of the gospel, Paul says, And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. How is Paul able to have joy in the midst of those difficult circumstances? That's really what we want to find out today. Because at one time or another, we will all face difficult circumstances. And the secret behind Paul's joy in the midst of these difficult circumstances was his vision. Paul's example is going to reveal to us that joy in the midst of difficulty all depends on the way you look at your problems. Because the way you look at your problems will always be more important than the problems themselves. And so in order to have joy in all circumstances, we must focus on kingdom opportunity. Did you notice that the Philippians, they were anxious to know how Paul was doing. That's why they sent Epaphroditus. They wanted a report on Paul's condition. They wanted to know how Paul was doing. But when Paul wrote back, he didn't tell them how he was doing. He told them how the gospel was doing. And even though Paul was imprisoned, the gospel was spreading. Look at what he said in verse 12, Philippians chapter 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That word advance is an interesting term for this very fact. It's a military word. It's used to describe the activity of army engineers who went ahead of the the army, cutting down trees and undergrowth to create a smooth path for them to travel through, to remove anything that might hinder the army's progress. So what Paul was saying is that his circumstances were actually clearing the way for the gospel to spread throughout Rome. And he gives two examples about how this has been accomplished. First, he says that his imprisonment has created the opportunity for him to evangelize the soldiers in Rome. In verse 13, he said, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. While imprisoned in Rome, we've already mentioned, he had this imperial guard present. The Imperial Guard, as we mentioned, was an elite group of soldiers stationed in Rome to serve as protection to the emperor. So if a prisoner comes to Rome who must appear before Caesar, he's going to have to be guarded by these soldiers who are there specifically to protect Caesar. Now here's how this worked with the Imperial Guard. 
they had shifts. They would be chained, literally chained to Paul for four to six hours a day, depending on the scholar you want to listen to. So they would be in these four to six hour shifts chained to Paul. That means throughout the day, Paul could have anywhere from four to six different soldiers stuck next to him. Now, I want you to think for a moment. What do you think Paul did with his four to six hours that each soldier was next to him? Do you think he, he talked about the, uh, the games in the Colosseum, the, the gladiators and such? Do you think he was focused on his favorite gladiator and talking about the, 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 the trade rumors that are coming up? Or, or talking about his fantasy gladiator league? What do you think Paul talked about? Do you think he was talking about current events? Do you think he was discussing the latest news and the latest trends that are happening out around the Roman Empire? No, you know good and well Paul's talking about the gospel, that Paul's utilizing the opportunity to share the good news, to evangelize some lost souls. You know that's happening, and we know that's happening, you know, because we get to the end of Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, and we are informed that there are some saints in the household of Caesar. I mentioned earlier, that could be a reference to a family member, or that could be a reference to somebody who serves in Caesar's household. Well, guess what? The imperial guard, these palace guards, this praetorian guard, these elite soldiers would have qualified as some in Caesar's house. So Paul's efforts that at the very least started with Sharing the good news with these soldiers produced results. Because you know what? Paul's focused on the opportunity he has in his difficult circumstances. But Paul also acknowledges that his circumstance had created the opportunity for Christians in Rome to be emboldened. So if you look at verse 13 again, he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now what's interesting about this particular opportunity, this particular progress, is the fact that not everyone who was emboldened to speak about Christ was doing it for the right reason. In verses 15 through 18, Paul expounded on this, saying, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now you have to remember, Paul didn't start the church in Rome. Other evangelists came to Rome and established the church there. In fact, the church was so well established before Paul arrived that when he wrote his letter to the Romans, he could mention 27 different Christians by name in the 16th chapter of that book alone. He knew a lot of Christians in Rome because that church was well established at that time, which was five or more years prior to this. And while the particular individuals mentioned in Romans chapter 16 may not have been the ones trying to afflict him through their preaching, it just goes to show that there were several Christians in Rome at this point in time. 
Unfortunately, some of the Christians in Rome, for reasons unknown to us, they didn't like Paul. Maybe they had been trying to build goodwill in the city towards the church, and the fact that he's there as a prisoner and is this famed member of the church, maybe they are bothered by the reflection it has upon the church there in Rome in the eyes of city leaders. Or maybe they're jealous. Because up to that point, they were the biggest named Christian in that town. And now Paul's here, and everyone's attention is on Paul and not them. Maybe there's a little bit of the same faction mentality you read about in 1 Corinthians, chat, 1 Corinthians where you have, I am of Cephas, and I am of Apollos, and so on. Maybe there's some of that mentality plaguing Rome at this time. I mean, in Romans chapter 12, Paul is going to write some of the same things he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the body being one and about the benefit that the body is to have for one another. Maybe there's some same issues going on. Whatever the case may be, there are these, these individuals, these, these uh, Christians who don't like Paul. And so they want to preach in such a way as to distress Paul, we're told. Now, how does that work? You may notice that Paul never once criticized their message. They were not proclaiming a false gospel. They were not teaching incorrectly. Paul never criticized the message. He criticized the motive. Maybe their motivation for preaching was, hey, if we advance the gospel here, maybe it directs more attention on Paul from Roman authorities and provides more, more pressure on him in prison. Or maybe it's just a competitive mentality. Hey, Paul's stuck in prison. We can outdo him in evangelizing and converting people now. We can become more successful than Paul. We can become a bigger name than Paul right now because he's stuck in prison. We don't know the reason, but for whatever reason, they're trying to create pressure and distress on Paul by their preaching. And Paul just says, hey, it doesn't matter to me. Their motives may be off, but as long as they're preaching the truth and people are listening and people are coming to Christ, I don't care. Because the most important thing is that Christ be taught and that this earpiece stay on my ear. Sorry. Paul is concerned. Paul is focused on kingdom opportunities. That's all he's focused on. And so he sees the opportunity that's been created by his imprisonment for him to share the gospel with some soldiers. And for Christians in Rome to be emboldened to preach more and more. So Paul looked at his imprisonment and instead of seeing something to complain about, he saw something to rejoice about. And it's all because he focused on the opportunities it created. When times get tough, when you're facing the difficulties of life, do you look for the opportunities that your difficulty will create? I'm very intentional about that. You may recall when the COVID-19 pandemic began, I did a sermon, a sermon called the COVID-19 Opportunity. Because in the midst of that situation, knowing that we were going to be separated for a while, knowing that the world was going to be turned a little upside down, I started searching for the opportunities. Because that's how I keep joy in the midst of things that are chaotic. Even in the 
situation of this racial divide in our country and the things going on related to that. The article I put out last week was called The Opportunity to Love. Because in the midst of this civil unrest and the, the problems that continue in our society on the lines of race, there is an opportunity for us as Christians to show the love of God. I believe that one of the primary ways we can maintain joy in the midst of difficult circumstances is by searching for the opportunity it presents us. And right now my father-in-law is laid up at home having broken his ankle just two days before he was planning to go back to Arkansas. He's miserable. And it created this new dynamic in our house that we weren't expecting. So you know what I did? I thought about opportunities. I thought about the fact that, that if, if my father-in-law was back in Arkansas, just he and his wife, he wouldn't have anybody to help him. So it was a blessing that it happened here and not back at home because Sarah and I can help take care of them. I thought about the opportunity it creates for Micah. She will, has never spent this much time around any of her grandparents. And they've been here for two weeks, and they might be here for a couple more months. In fact, we don't even know when they'll be able to go home. They might be here until the baby is born, and that's a great opportunity as well. See, I believe that the best way to have joy in the midst of circumstances is to always look for the opportunity it creates for the kingdom and for you. And I believe that's what Paul demonstrates to us here. I want you to remember something. It takes immense heat and time to make porcelain out of clay. It takes immense pressure and time to make diamonds out of coal. It takes immense discomfort and time to make a pearl out of a grain of sand. The opportunities are beautiful even though the circumstances may be painful. We must always remember that a time of difficulty is, is also a time of opportunity, and if we want to have joy in the midst of difficulty, then we need to focus on the opportunities rather than the problems. But not only that, we must focus on God's fidelity. Fidelity is just a big fancy word for faithfulness, and it rhymed with opportunity. So when I say that in order to have joy in all circumstances, we must focus on God's fidelity. What I'm ultimately saying is that we must focus on God's promises. You know, God put the rainbow in the clouds so that we remember his promise to never destroy the earth by way of flood again. God has consistently made promises to us, and he has consistently fulfilled those promises. Look at what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1. At the very end of verse 18, going into verse 19, he said, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul indicated that he can rejoice because he knew that God would help him. How can Paul be so certain about that? It's because God has repeatedly and continuously promised to be our ally. Think about what the following verses that I'm about to read are communicating to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That passage is telling us that God is faithful to us and that he promises to provide us a way out of every temptation. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 3. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. God is faithful to us in that he promises to provide us a... I'm reading the previous one, sorry. That verse is telling us that God is faithful to us in that he intends to protect us from the evil one in some capacity. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That passage is telling us that God is faithful to us and that he promises to provide for our material needs. Very interesting that the promise of never leaving and forsaking you comes in the context of a conversation about money. That's because it's about contentment, that God's going to take care of your needs just as he promised in Matthew chapter 6 when he compared us to flowers and birds. And there's James chapter 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That passage is telling us that God is faithful to us and that he promises to reward everyone who remains steadfast to him through their difficulties. And finally, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That passage is communicating that God is faithful to us and that he promises to forgive us of our sins when we repent. Sometimes, in the midst of difficulty, we just need to be reminded that God is faithful and that he's promised all these things to us. And we need to reflect on the promises of God. We need to reflect on what God has promised to do for us and what God has done for us. In the midst of difficulty, sometimes the best thing you can do is have a good memory and remember how God God got you through the last difficulty, how God was there for you in the midst of the last hardship. You see, Paul not only looked back with joy at what was being accomplished in Rome, but he was looking ahead with joy at what was going to happen because God was on his side. That's because Paul knew the promises that God had made to his children, and Paul believed in the words of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23 that he who promised is faithful. So when times get tough, do you remind yourself of what God has promised you? Do you reflect on his faithfulness? Because if we want to have joy in the midst of difficulty, then we need to focus on God's fidelity because he remains faithful even when we are faithless. I didn't make that up. That's his words in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. He remains faithful even if we are faithless. But not only must we focus on God's fidelity, we must also focus on Christ's glory. This is our final point of the morning. I know you're watching your clocks. Look at what Paul said, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is saying that his life's purpose is to bring glory to Christ. Period. End of sentence. 
And that means that it doesn't matter to him whether he's exonerated or executed because his goal in life is to bring honor to Christ. And that can be accomplished either way. See, the problem with most people is that their life's purpose can be affected by circumstance. We talked a little bit about this in our introduction to this series, but if your purpose of your life is to make money, then what's going to happen when the stock market takes a big dip or the economy tanks or you lose your job, you see the purpose of your life then is altered. If the purpose of your life is your health, then what are you going to do when you receive that diagnosis or start undergoing those treatments? Because the circumstances of life can affect that purpose. If the purpose of your life is a particular relationship, then what are you going to do when that relationship comes to an end? Whether it be a significant other leaving you or, or a dear friend moving away or a child growing up or a loved one passing away, that relationship can come to an end. And when that purpose is gone, what are you going to do? Circumstances can affect any purpose under the sun. And that's why Jesus instructs us to lay up treasures in heaven. Because nothing can spoil, nothing can deteriorate, and nothing can be taken away when that's our life's purpose. See, the problem with most people is that their life's purpose can be shaken by circumstance. But not Paul's. And that's because his life's purpose was to honor Christ, and circumstances can't affect that purpose. Because Christ is going to receive honor and glory and exaltation no matter what. A little later in this letter, in chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, Paul is going to say that there's a day coming when every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. And every tongue will confess that He is Lord. So no matter what, Jesus is going to be honored. Jesus is going to be glorified. Jesus is going to be exalted. You just have to decide if that's your purpose now or is going to be your purpose at the last minute before you go away into eternity. Because that's the one purpose in life that can't be affected by circumstance. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That life's purpose to bring glory to Christ cannot be affected by circumstance. Paul can fulfill that purpose whether he's alive or whether he's dead. And so if we want to have joy no matter what the circumstance, no matter if we're facing any difficulty or hardship, then we need to understand, to focus on Christ's glory because if that's our purpose in life, it'll never be affected by circumstance and we can have joy in the journey. Here's the point of the whole lesson. We can't find joy in the midst of we can't find joy in the midst of difficult circumstances if we do not focus solely on our creator. I heard a story about a Christian who went to a barber shop to have his hair cut. And he was having a conversation with the barber that eventually turned into the subject of religion. And the barber proclaimed, "I don't believe that God exists." And the Christian said, well, why not? And the barber said, just go outside and look around. Look at all the suffering and pain that's out there in the world. How could a loving God allow those things to happen? How could a loving God 
allow people to die? How can a loving God allow people to, to contract deadly diseases? How can a loving God allow families to be broken up and separated? How can a loving God see kids suffering? How can a loving God allow these things to happen? And the Christian said, well, I don't believe barbers exist. And the barber said, excuse me? I'm cutting your hair right now. How could I not exist? And the Christian said, well, just go outside. Look at all those people with long hair and unkempt beards. Obviously, barbers don't exist. And the barber said, well, the difference is they've chosen not to come see me. And the Christian said, exactly. You see suffering out in the world because you haven't chosen to see God. You see the pain and the agony that people are going through, and, and you don't see God. God's not the originator of pain and suffering, of difficult circumstances, but God is the answer to pain and suffering and difficult circumstances. And today, if you need to discover that answer, if you need to respond to that answer, the opportunity is available to become His child and to see life differently through the lens of God instead of the lens of your circumstances. And you can do that today by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, and you will be raised to a new life. A life that is focused on Him. A life that is paid for by Him. A life that is in service to Him. Maybe you've risen to that new life, but you've lost focus. Maybe you've even lost joy. Maybe you're going through a difficult situation right now, and you don't see joy. You don't see opportunities. You don't see how your situation can bring glory to Christ. And you've forgotten how faithful God's been to you. We invite you to come. Let us demonstrate to you God's fidelity by showering you with our love. Let us demonstrate to you God's fidelity by asking for his involvement in your life to help you see and to help you overcome. Let us surround you with love today. If you have any need to respond to the invitation today, we invite you to come today so that you can find joy in the midst of difficulty. Won't you come while together we stand and sing this song? Happy